Hey, Remakers, welcome to the podcast. It's Lily here, your host. Very happy to have you. Very excited that you are here for a a conversation with really one of our favorite people. So I have Millie back on the pod joining us today, and together we are talking to Mark Serenzak, who is just a gem of a human being. He is a beautifully intelligent, curious, compassionate person who has spent the very vast majority of his career in social justice, working on issues both domestic and international. So let me just tell you a little bit about Mark. He comes to us from the Uniting Church, where he is the director of their justice and international mission. His job is to basically find out what matters to the people who are the members of the Uniting Church congregations all over Australia, and then to help focus that energy into effective advocacy work. So he has, he's been on a number of advisory bodies, both to the Commonwealth and state governments in Victoria. He is the secretariat for the Tax Justice Network in Australia. He's been in leadership positions on, you know, Jubilee 2000, Make Poverty History, the MICA Challenge. He's active in anti-corruption movements. Um, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies, but he's also like really, truly, genuinely steeped in a lot of really big important issues of our day and he can connect the dots with a kind of clarity curiosity and compassion that i think is really rare and wonderful so i hope that you love this conversation as much as i did um there's some great gems in here about kind of extending our empathy and compassion and curiosity to decision makers seeing the bigger pictures and the kind of hidden systems at work why things like just electrifying everything and powering everything with renewable energy actually isn't enough to kind of turn this ship around as a whole that that actually even if we solved climate change tomorrow we might have other existential crises waiting in the wings unless we kind of do some deeper transformation work um so he's an interesting person who manages to speak about this stuff in a way that doesn't leave you just feeling daunted or depressed but actually um, believing that it's possible. So I give you Mark Cernzak. Mark, welcome to the Remakers podcast. It is just absolutely delightful to be here with you. And welcome back, Millie. It has been a minute since we had you here on the pod and I was very pleased that you were able to join us today. So I feel like this is a real treat to have this conversation with really two of my favorite people in this work and in this space about kind of the world that we're working for and the way that we sustain ourselves on the inside as that happens. So Mark, we've given people a little bit of an introduction to you, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be doing this work, because if I'm not mistaken, so you currently work as a senior social justice advocate, you work with Uniting Church, you have this really broad local and international focus on a whole range of super important issues, but you started out, you have a PhD, is it in chemical engineering? And you started out in the mining industry. So you've been on a journey there. And I would just love it if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Oh, I, I think, uh, well, the issue for me was going through school. I was very good at maths and science and not so good on humanities. So when you got career advice and you looked at what careers were available, uh, engineering ended up sort of being 
sort of where you were channeled or I was channeled into um, at that time. And I think getting to uni, I started to pick up a, I, I mean, I'd already grown up and growing up through a, uh, a school, a, a religious school, Catholic school and a, a church that had um, fairly strong focus on social justice. So there was, but there was kind of a view at that stage that my life path was going to be, well, I'm going to sort of do this, you know, math science based type career. And then in my spare time, I'm going to be able to put some volunteer time into doing social justice. Um, <clears throat> and so I ended up sort of going through doing a PhD. And by that stage, I was heavily involved with uh, groups like Amnesty International and Pax Christie and the international campaign to ban landmines. And I, you know, in my engineering career, I ended up with Rio Tinto um, working as a research engineer um, and then, you know, part-time or volunteer, sorry, uh, putting in time with all these civil society organisations. Um, and But eventually I sort of, you know, ended up feeling like, well, spending my life just making a little bit of extra profit for a large multinational company probably wasn't what I wanted to be doing for most of my time. Um, and, and not that as an employer, I, they were, you know, if they needed you, they treated you well. It was a good a good employer for where I sat. I mean, I'm not going to say that's a universal experience for people who've worked for EA Tinto, but certainly I had I didn't have a negative experience with them as an employee. Uh, but I did just feel, feel there was um, more that I could be doing with my life. And a position came up with the Uniting Church that was a uh, about a third of the cut in the, the salary I was taking at the time, but I felt, well, I could make that actually work, that that was going to be enough to absolutely live on, and then I could be spending all my time just doing what I was passionate about and what I felt a calling to um, in that sense as well. Wow, that's so cool. So had you been, did the kind of religious interest and the sort of humanitarian stuff had that always been embedded together was it did you want a job within a faith-based structure to to sort of use that passion and feel that calling was that part of it for you I wasn't I, I mean I did feel it was a, there was certainly an interplay for me between my Christian faith and a sense of social justice and that had been really strongly emphasized I think the Catholic secondary school I went to had a fairly unusual curriculum so like Year seven, we did we did a novel about the sort of massacre of First Nations people in Tasmania, um, you know, and then through the subsequent years, uh, we did a section on how Western colonial powers had sort of stolen the oil from the Middle East and um, cheated um, Arab populations out of it. We did uh, we looked at the Boxer War and how the Western colonial powers had basically fought a war so they could push drugs into China. Um, and, and so this was kind of very much, you know, English, we did a, a novel, The Moon is Down, which is a John Steinbeck novel sort of about Nazi occupation of Norway. Um, you know, so you had throughout the curriculum, it wasn't just you kind of had your RE class and that was where religion was contained. There was a very strong sense that um, the faith was influencing the overall curriculum at that school. Um, and I think that really embedded, really helped embed it for me. I think it was reinforced at home as well. I mean, my parents had a fairly strong um, sense of social justice as well, but not not politically active or not engaged in actually pursuing that, probably more verbalising it rather than actually acting on it as such. Um, but, yeah, so that, that had been a, an important link. And I think with the Uniting Church, I was able to find a, a position where 
I could both pursue that social justice from but from within that faith context. Yeah, it's a fascinating position that you have within the church. Can you explain it a little bit to people? Like, what is your role and how do you help? Like, how do you decide, for example, what the church is going to be working on so that you don't have 300 congregations working on 300 different social <laughs> justice issues that they care about? Yeah, so uh, look, I think one thing about the Uniting Church is it has a very democratic structure. So in actual fact, it's its governing bodies are all elected by the church members. Um, so there is a kind of election uh, process, which does make it different to some of the other churches in that sense as well. And and therefore, in a, in a way, the staff in the church are supposed to be there to serve those elected bodies of the membership. Um, so it is very much a service type role. And within that, what we've set up uh, in working on the social justice is we have a supporter base of about four and a half thousand people, both in the church and um, outside of it. And annually, we ask them what do they want to be resourced to work on. So our role is to focus on how do we how do we resource people to be active on the social justice issues they're interested in. Look, that was pretty important from early on, because uh, otherwise it either becomes the staff's preference, so you kind of do what you want to do, and that doesn't feel very much like service then to the membership. Um, or I did when I first came in, we weren't there wasn't a sort of survey, and what was happening was. Uh, you would have people with a particular passion for an issue and they would try and lobby the head of the church to sort of get it on the agenda um, and no real test whether that was a, um, something else. So when I first started, we, had, we only had a supporter base when I started of, about, of 327 people and we surveyed them uh, as to what issues they wanted to be resourced on. That came back with a list of 176 issues they would like to be resourced on. So we had to sort of narrow it down and sort of say, well, you know, there's going to be a threshold there that that where an issue only has one or two people interested in it. We just have to direct them, like, here's the organisation, you know, if you're against duck shooting and there aren't many people in the church who might think duck shooting is where they want to put their effort, here's, here's a bunch of organisations who work on duck shooting, right? And that's completely, you know, it's great. It's great that we've got members who want to engage in all sorts of different issues. That's really good. Um, but obviously with um with our staff limit there's a limit to how many issues we can actually meaningfully engage with and help them get involved and resource them to be involved in and so what are some of those big issues that, that have been the themes throughout your career and your work with the uniting church it actually has shifted over time so let me start with the present day so present day last few years the big issues have really stuck with climate change sort of being the top then justice for First Nations is has sort of always been second or third. Then um, people seeking asylum, refugee rights uh, is there. And then it, it, then you're uh, more recently in the last few years, family violence has, has appeared um, as a high issue. Uh, and then modern slavery um, has been after that. So they're sort of the, the big five that, that have sort of caught the church tension. But when I started, there was probably a lot more focus on international issues, um, which is interesting. So there's been quite a shift. There was a much stronger focus on poverty, for example, from church members, and that's really fallen down the level of interest mm. as well. Um, there was quite a strong interest in gambling reform. And again, that's that sort of, uh, it, it's still, there's still a, a level of it, but I think people have come to the point where they feel, you know, the pokies industry um has been around for a long time and it's hard to maintain the the energy or the 
the commitment to want to keep pursuing more and more reform uh, in relation to pokies when there are other issues pressing as well. It's often not that people don't care about certain issues. It's simply they're, they're asked to prioritise and they have to prioritise. So um, they have limits of time as well. So even if they even if they could ask us and even if we were able to resource 100 issues, the reality would be not every member could work on 100 issues. So there's there's a level. And, and helping people be more focused allows for a, a building of a, um, a critical mass. So because uh, I do notice in some other denominations where they don't have any central social justice staff, their congregations might still pick up social justice issues and work on them. But, you know, it'll be if you've got, 150 congregations and they're all working they're working on 100 issues then their ability to focus energy on any to bring about change at any point in time is somewhat limited um, so whether they they then have to hook in with an other civil society organization or their efforts may not have the impact that they otherwise could so by having a sort of centralized let's find out what we're all more interested in and then let's work together collectively we can actually have more influence. It, it's so interesting to me, Mark. One of the things that I've kind of admired about your approach and how you deal with this stuff is that, you know, you can take the global context and the historical context, like, you know, talking about the books you read as a, as a student, I'm really struck by how that still has impact on you and how you can put those systems pieces together in, in quite an unusual way, I think, and quite a powerful way. You know, you talked about the top issues of climate change, First Nations justice, asylum seeker, refugees, etc. You seem to come at it as not just segmented separate issues, but as a, you know, what is the crux of all of these issues and what what is it about the structures we have and the systems that kind of hold all of those issues in certain places? How do you, in your work, I, I feel like from what I've observed, that you are kind of going for that systems change stuff that brings it all together. Can you talk us through some of that? Look, I think that is really important looking at the systems um, issues. And I think that's one of the luxuries I've had in the, the role with the church is because I'm because i effectively, the members are asking us to work on a range of issues. It means you're not looking just at your own little, not that, sorry, I don't mean to diminish that. I mean, it's great that some people are focused on one issue and there's a real there's a benefit to that that you could put a lot of effort into that one issue. The downside, though, is that potentially you miss opportunities or you miss to see the links that exist between um, different issues. And I think uh, I do think the system stuff becomes really important um, in in seeing how things are actually connected and understanding. Um, and the need often sometimes we're not working on the issues that are actually really foundational to um to, to you know helping other issues go forward so for example we did do work on the tax justice network part of that was the view we needed to see if we could build more government revenue because with more government revenue well then we can fund a whole bunch of things that we want we can we can have the space to fund mental health services we can have the space to fund better aged care we can have the funds um to fund um better domestic violence support so you know, so it becomes, um, whereas sometimes if you're working just on the one issue, so if I'm working on mental health, then I'm just focused on how do I get more money for me or for, for the issue I care about in terms of mental health, but not thinking about what impact that might have on other important needs within society. 
So that's an important um, issue there as well. I think the other one that we picked up more recently, what we've realised is even when you, if you fight for the tax justice side and you get more revenue, unfortunately, if you get a government then who's elected who decides they're going to do a stage three tax cut and give it all the way to the wealthy, um, a lot of your effort may not have had the impact that you wished it would have had um, in that sense. So then it becomes, how do we actually improve our democracy? Because I think uh, I am struck by the fact that we do have, an, we have at the moment democracies that where the, the very wealthy get to skew the system in their favour and get the policy outcomes uh, they want. But certainly on that issue of overall systems, I have recently, um, and it was a, a book recommended to me by colleagues in Australia and made, um, having a look at Nancy Fraser's Cannibal Capitalism. Uh, now, I think it's a pretty hard read, if I'm honest, uh, but because um, I think she can be fairly polemic at, at certain points. Uh, but I think she does weave together the idea we need to look at the system. And I think that's, I've particularly been struck by that with the environment movement. We get some people in the environment movement who sort of say, well, climate change is this existential crisis and therefore it justifies basically we just do whatever is needed to fix the immediate and we don't think about systemically how we got here. And I think that's going to be flawed thinking. I think at the end of the day, if all we do is electrify everything and we leave the underlying neoliberal economic system unchallenged and in place, then I think we're just waiting for the next crisis to emerge anyway. And there are plenty of them hanging in the wings, uh, you know, <laughs> whether it's going to be uh, yeah. misuse of antibiotics to the point where yeah. uh, in the food industry where antibiotics don't work anymore or whether it's going to be the development of an AI, you know, we've got people like Stephen Dawkins saying need to think about the threats to, that AI might represent. I mean, that's, you know, when someone of that calibre starts saying you need to pay attention here, it's probably worth paying a bit of attention. Or, you know, we've got the, the multinational food industry. The estimates are at the moment that by 2035, a quarter of the world's population will be obese and a quarter will be overweight and the health impacts, the health costs of that just let alone, you know, the loss of quality of life and all that. But if you just wanted to put it into dollar terms, we're talking sort of $6 trillion worth of health costs by 2035 if we continue on the current trajectory. So there are plenty of other um, crises. And I think looking at how those things weave together is really important and recognising you can't just fix one, you know. And I'm very disturbed by the notion that, well, we just electrify everything and we kind of then ignore all the human rights abuses that are going on in the system that are going to allow, you know, so solar panels have to be cheap to compete. Okay, so that cheapness is paid through forced labour out of China um, and we kind of just turn a blind eye to that. So someone else pays for our getting it cheap effectively. Is that what you were referring to earlier when you mentioned modern slavery? Is that one of the Yeah, examples? so modern, sorry, modern slavery is, uh, sorry, a bit of jargon there probably, and modern slavery does refer to, it sort of bundles together what was slavery? So slavery is is direct ownership, and then but we also talk about forced labour, where people are compelled to work without the freedom to choose not to. Human trafficking, where basically you are tricked or deceived and moved into a exploitative situation of work, and then it also includes the worst forms of child labour under the Australian definition as well. So, so where children are also being exploited. I mean, I think as Millie was saying, there are relatively few people. Uh, that I think we encounter, you know, even steeped in the world of social justice advocates and advocates for environmental sustainability and progress and even economic systems change, people who can kind of hold all the pieces, 
hold all the complexity, hold the pain and the suffering and stay sane and, you know, be, be in it for the long haul. And I'm wondering if in your ability to sort of do that, one, if you have some wisdom for us, because I definitely want to hear that, but sort of two, like, do you have distilled for yourself a bit of a vision of what we're aiming for? Like if what you've identified as the kind of neoliberal, like the money and the politics are the two issues, you know, that kind of drive everything else. Like we need a healthy democracy and we need an economy that doesn't model itself off this kind of neoliberal thing that is hurtling us toward a climate cliff. But as you say, with 10 other existential crises waiting in the wings, what are the opposite of like a dysfunctional democracy? You know, and even the money and the politics, obviously the cap- the politics is captured by the money. So like, do you have a sense of what is the world that we are aiming for? How is it kind of fundamentally different in a way that would allow all of these issues that we care about to be solved? Look, I, I, I would, firstly, I'd probably give a plug for Australia Remade because I think it's, <laughs> uh, you know, there was a great working together from a whole lot of civil society organisations coming up with a great vision for Australia, I'd probably want to lift that slightly higher and say, well, we do also need a vision for what a great world looks like, but it is pretty simple, right? We just, it is about how do we have systems that mean we treat each other with respect and kindness and empathy. And this is one of the great paradoxes for me. We are, as human beings, we are capable of such great levels of love, empathy, care for one another, and yet we ended up with such terrible systems that inflict suffering and pain and people pursuing greed in order to advance their own interests at the expense of other people's basic needs. I, I, I don't understand, you know, it's kind of really hard to figure out how did, how did given, you know, given all that goodness that we can be capable of, yeah. why we've ended up with such bad systems. Yeah. Um, and I think, but that also gives me hope that if we are good, you yeah. know, the fact that most of us are good and, and people who don't want to harm others, well, how do we actually amplify that empathy so that we redesign our systems to achieve that outcome um, where everybody can have a decent life. And I'm not the only, you know, there are plenty of visions out there that, that people give us hope with. I mean, I can think of Kate Raworth's Donut Economics provides, you know, one example of challenging neoliberalism and sort of suggesting that, um, you know, we need to find the boundaries between meeting people's needs and at the same time not destroying the planet yeah. um, on the way through. Um, and, you know, and then you get down to the interpersonal where you start looking at some of the behavioural, um, like one of my favourite books was, I don't like the title, the War, the War for Kindness, which is by Shamil Zaki. Um, and he's talking about empathy and he's basically looking at, well, how do you amplify empathy? And, you know, one of the big barriers is when empathy is easily, most easily done when you are face-to-face with somebody, when they're immediate to you. Um, you know, and that's not a, that's not a new concept. Um, uh, interestingly, Adam Smith, the, who's sort of credited with the founder of, um, of of modern capitalism, he wrote this sort of essay piece where he sort of says, well, you know, imagine someone, they're sitting at the breakfast table and they read in the newspaper that 10 million people have died in an earthquake in China. And they sort of go, wow, that's a, you know, that's tragedy. I feel very sad about that. And then while eating their breakfast, they slice the top of their little finger off, right? And so what are they going to be really focused on? Well, it's going to be... Yeah. You know what they've just done to their finger, right? Because it's immediate, yeah. it's felt very close, and it's that, and that, that lesson out of empathy is we're kind of empathetic to to closeness. So the lesson out of that I probably take is how do we make the distant closer? How do we actually bring to people's attention the experience of others to draw out that empathy that they will they will naturally have? But also Jamil's 
Shamil Zaki talks about there are ways of also enhancing empathy. Empathy is one of those things that's like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. There isn't a, it's not a, it's not a currency where if you spend it, you, you're going to run out of it. Don't deplete it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're the kind of things that really give me hope that I really think we are capable of much better. And I see lots of signs, both local and international. You know, I can look at stuff we've worked on, like, you know, probably 30 years ago, you could pretty much pay a bribe. Companies could pay bribes to foreign officials anywhere in the world and they could claim them as tax deductions. Um, and that was pretty universal, right? Now, <laughs> it's pretty much nobody, you know, nowhere. It doesn't mean bribes have been eliminated, but they are criminal everywhere. And then certainly, um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of progress in eliminating some of that corruption. It's not gone. Still, It's still a problem. But, uh, you know, I can say we're making progress in in many areas. And I think that's, that's, you know, really good, as well as the things that sort of threaten us and the new, the new problems we create for ourselves collectively. Are there other examples that come to mind of places that we're making progress? Because I feel like when we don't hear about the systemic progress, like often the good news at the end of the broadcast is the equivalent of like a cute puppy. And <laughs> it's actually really dispiriting, right? Because, you you know, we take in so much information about all of the problems of the world. And then the good news story, it just makes you feel like saying, well, abandon all hope because this is the best we can come up with, you know? And yet I think that there are so many wonderful things. You know, the world may feel like it's getting better and worse at the same time, but we only hear about the worst. And so we have this narrative of doom and gloom and panic um, which is quite understandable, right? And we're also hardwired to like, you know, take those negative things and hold them really dear, right? To kind of keep our species going. So, you know, what are for you the, the other areas, you know, you're just speaking about corruption. Where else are we making progress? Well, look, I think if you took a longer term view, you'd certainly, I'd, I'd probably start with the ability, if you think about democracy, democracy ultimately, and and ideally it's a, it's a system that ultimately should give every person a, um, an equal say within our society. Um, and, and if you think about where we came from, the feudal system was basically you were born to a pace in society largely and whether you were going to be at the top of that society or at the bottom was just a, by chance of birth. Um, that was quite different. And even the transition, I mean, when like England, uh, early 1800s, um, you still had voting was based on property rights. So only about 5% of uh, males in England were able to vote in the early 1800s, right? So you had this whole movement emerge, the Charteris, which was basically they collected a petition saying, well, voting should be universal. We should have universal suffrage. Everyone should get a say, right? So that was an early movement. And, the, you know, that pro-democracy movement was really crushed by the establishment forces in England, right? It's kind of quite ironic when you sort of look at some of those um, sorts of things. 1820, you know, you had, you're still in France, wealthy people got two votes. Um, that was by law, right? So, so you had, you know, you, you think about some of those anachronisms and how far we've moved. I think also if I looked at the status gender, um, gender rights, I think have really, really shifted. Uh, again, maybe not everywhere, but certainly large parts of the world, you've seen significant improvements um, in those. I can even think about a, uh, one of my friends wrote a PhD. He was looking at the... Um, uh, veteran when veterans returned from the First World War, but he was sort of commenting about um, that was sort of this newspaper reporting or the common view of, of um, Melbourne at the time was the noises you would hear at night with the barking of dogs and the screams of women. 
from the family violence, right? That's how common it was. Um, or, you know, I can think about an essay I read on um, or a journal article looking at the French Revolution, and it was looking at family violence in France, late 1700s, and sort of family violence was acceptable and talks about this dinner party where this husband is is assaulting his wife, beating her in front of the dinner guests. And it's only when he pulls a knife to go and stab her that the other guests intervene and go, you know, that's too far, right? So, um, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, progress made. I mean, I talk about modern slavery, but if you thought about slavery itself, that sort of ownership of people, I mean, one, it's pretty much illegal everywhere now, and two, that direct ownership is probably at a much lower level than, you know, those, those really bleak times. Um, there's still, I mean, I think where we've seen the growing problem in that space is the forced labour issues and, and the sort of human trafficking, deceptive, exploitative labour. Um, but again, I can look at, you know, I can look across these different areas and you can see quite a few areas where we'd say society has shifted um, often in, in much better ways. Really struck, Mark, again, by your very unusual ability to hold the scale of the problem and to be able to see all those connections, but also to hold the hope and possibility. Like I think that the both this ability to, to look at the scale that you look at and kind of see the huge opportunity and love and possibility in the same moment that you you see the the problems. And, you know, you were talking before about, you know, there's no point us electrifying everything if it comes at, a, at the cost that it is currently going to come at. And I had this moment of reaction to you being like, panic, like, what do we do then? What, what, what do we do? <laughs> and, and then you continue to talk and this kind of love and possibility comes through. And so I guess I have a question about like how do we bring our panics together and see them as not competing panics um, but as we sort of have a greater opportunity when we address them both, like how, you know, how, how would you guide us a movement, the country, the world, like how would you guide us through that challenge of, of, of moving from seeing this kind of scarcity of solutions to abundance of solutions that fixes multiple problems? Look, I, Firstly, I'd probably respond by first saying I probably wasn't trying to suggest we don't need to move urgently on climate change. So I wouldn't <laughs> in that yeah, way. Yeah. I think probably <laughs> this is one of my greatest lamentations is unfortunately what my point here is we're now in such an awful situation on that issue that we have no alternative but to accept human rights abuses um, and, and violence against other people as a way of solving the problem of climate change. And that's just a horrendous situation to be in. I, you know, I just That causes me just such great lament. I can't look at solar panels and feel any um, feeling of positivity about that. I kind of go, well, this is a necessary kind of evil at the moment um, because we've allowed ourselves to get to this sort of point where we don't have, um, you know, solutions. Although there are that avoid this. I mean, we can obviously make some decisions that would, you know, we could go for greater energy efficiency over prioritising some of these products made through exploitation. So there are certainly we have choices. Some of them will be more expensive. That's the issue. But I think at the end of the day, if they're more expensive for us, well, if they're cheaper for us, it probably means someone else somewhere else, somewhere, someone somewhere else has paid for them, I think is the answer on that. But going to your question about how do we come together, I think that is really, I think the answer is in that we actually do need to come together and listen to each other and actually recognise the connections between um, 
the issues we're working on and how they impact on each other. And here I give a shout out to Mark Chenery from Common Cause. I think he's really championed that in Australia in a really positive way and highlighted the research that actually shows, you know, when we when we get people to act on one sort of social justice issues, it often has a it often activates them to be concerned about other social justice issues. So we kind of get a a mutually reinforcing benefit from doing that. So rather than saying, well, I need you to only act on my issue and that's the one that's the most important to the exclusion of others, I think if we're open to actually say, well, when we get people to act on and and to rethink the world in a positive way and to be uh, focused on the good of all, then they're going to be activated to do that on a whole bunch of things, not just the one the one issue. So trying to get people to to look more holistically and and think about well how do I do how do I ensure good for not just myself but for others as well um, more broadly um, and that we're all better off we don't you know it's not a zero-sum I think you know we don't need to see it as a zero-sum game so I think that communication of being willing to support each other in different issues and and um, being generous in supporting others is is part of the solution to that think about that in relation to government and how it's like we're worried that they only have so much political capital to spend. And so right now, at the time of this recording, we're coming up to the big voice referendum vote. And I've heard it, you know, talked about in kind of progressive circles and in the sort of civil society world that the Albanese government is spending all of its political capital on the voice. It's their one area where they're going big and bold. And if it fails, they're going to be kowtowed with their tail between their legs until they hopefully get reelected or maybe they won't. And it's it's sort of sad to me that we have, that we put these limits on ourselves because on the one hand, we're, we're always wanting to change everything. We're always seeing, you know, the full suite of things that need action and progress. But then we come at it from this kind of scarcity mindset of like, oh my God, but let's be real here. You know, we can only ask for so much. And if the one thing we decide we're going to go for doesn't work, then we fail at everything. And it's like, wow, we are really not setting ourselves up for success here. You know, like I recently had someone on the podcast, Sally Hill, who was talking about like in in an email privately to me afterwards, she's like, yeah, business is really good in an abundance mindset. And the not-for-profit sector isn't. Like we don't have those same resources. We're not looking at the world through the same lens. We're trying to solve problems, not create markets. Like it's a whole different kettle of fish, but that sort of scarcity, fear-based approach to the world like I just don't think we're going to birth a beautiful world through that kind of mindset yeah I think I mean a couple of comments I'd make there is one I think there might you know we end up perhaps being too focused on what is appearing in mainstream media um at times and thinking that's the only thing taking place because if I think about the current government they are moving on so many fronts simultaneously um a whole bunch of reforms so you know, everything from major industrial relations reform, going to try and tackle exploitation in the gig econo- gig on-demand economy, uh, for example. They're moving on anti-bribery laws before the parliament at the moment. They've done a whole lot just to improve the scheme that brings Pacific Island workers into Australia to work on Australian farms and meatworks. A whole lot of improvements taken um, place in that space. They're working on improvements around family violence and how it relates on people on, um, you know, temporary visas. So, there's all this stuff going on. I mean, the, the limitation on government probably is uh, passing laws. There's there's limited time in the Senate, so they have to prioritise. And so for any government, they're always, their legislative agenda is probably the limitation. That is the one thing we are, we all have in, as as finite. Our finitude is, is we all only have time. Time is the equaliser, right? All of us get, we all get it the same. 
uh, no matter who we are or where we're from, we all get time time passes for it. You might have a slightly longer life, but the the number of hours in the day is the same for all of us, right? So there is a finitude within that, but we get the choices about how we want to prioritize that time. Um, and I would say this is a government that is doing um, a whole lot of things all simultaneously. Some of it's just not in the the other thing that really excites me is civil society is really vibrant. The community is really vibrant. All those issues I talk about, there are groups everywhere working on their little bit of the society to help make our society better. And often if you're working on your one issue, you're just not aware that yeah, there's a whole so lot true. of other people working on all these other things. Um, even just recently, I suddenly became aware I hadn't come across them before. Um, someone alerted me to there's a group, there's a coalition working together called Welcoming Disability, which is trying to remove the current exemption that exists on in the anti-discrimination legislation as it applies to the Immigration Act. So in other words, we're sort of, you know, if you look at state level, you've got state governments introducing laws saying ableism is really bad. But when it comes to immigration, well, we go, um, <laughs> now where if you've got a disability, you're not welcome, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So where does that fit, right? We have, an inc- we have a cognitive inconsistency um, on that. And I think that, so I think they're, they're on to something. Their, their moment is really strong because they can point to that complete inconsistency where internally we're sort of saying, well, we want to treat people with disability with respect and acknowledge the important role they can play in society. Well, that doesn't stack up if you're then saying to someone wanting to come to our country, sorry, you've got a disability, you're not welcome. And is that because they just think that person will cost Medicare too much money? And yeah, they yeah. Right. it's a kind of sense of, and it fits with a sense of that, you know, immigration should be... All right, so I'm going to let me start with the positive framing. I think immigration should be about a mutuality of us looking at. Obviously, we need to think about how are people going to fit into our society, um, and you know what 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 will, what will the impact on our society be. I think that's a valuable, that is a necessary thing to think about to make immigration work because it's got to work for both. It's not going to work if people here suddenly feel hostile. To those who have come, it's also not going to work if it's all about bringing people here so they can be exploited, mistreated, treated with racism. That's that's not going to work either. So it's got to be a mutually beneficial system. But I think for too for far too long in Australia, the view sort of at a governmental level has been that well, immigration should simply be about our benefit. Um, so you know, migrants should only be allowed in this country if somehow they bring riches that advance, <laughs> rather than. You know, what can we do that's going to be mutually beneficial? And we, we, we're a bit, you know, we're in a bit of two minds about that because we do, I think many people would acknowledge the benefits multiculturalism has brought to Australia, that sense of rich culture, that ability to learn from different perspectives around the world. I think, you know, a lot of people would value that and introducing us to a whole lot of rich, different sort of cultures um, across that. So, yeah. Yeah, look, it's, it's all really interesting. And I'm of two minds as to kind of where to take this conversation next because I'm conscious of time and, and still I feel like it's just such a trip. I feel like I'm sitting down in front of somebody who has like absorbed a library in his being and I just want to ask you kind of everything. I think while we're on the topic a little bit of government and decision making and what that sort of world looks like. I'm aware that you also sit on a number of advisory bodies, right? And so you advise state and federal governments and you've been in lots of rooms with decision makers pretty up close and speaking pretty candidly. And that you have seen up close some of the tensions that are on these leaders to 
you know, that what they are aware of should they make calls that, you know, powerful interests do not like. So when you talk about fixing our democracy and, you know, making sure the, the power, the voices of the wealthy don't sort of drown everybody else out, what do you see from decision makers who, you know, we we had a guest on the show who was saying, look, when the minister looks you in the eye and tells you they sh- they believe in what you believe in and they share your values, but they just, we can't afford it and it's not going to happen right now. You know, we just, we'd rather pay for the submarines or the stage three tax cuts. What they're doing is basically saying that, you know, they're, they're kind of lying to you about what they care about. I'm curious, I think you have a slightly different take and I'm curious if you could maybe expand on that a little bit for us. Yeah, look, I do think... Um... People, I, I think about myself, like sometimes you'll you'll be presented with an idea and you'll need to think about it for a while, right? And you um and similarly, you know, for a, a government minister, they will have a they have limited time, so they've got to make decisions about what are they going to pursue um and what do they want to try and achieve while they're in office. So they are making some of those decisions. So they can't work on every issue. So they're gonna to have to think about what in my limited time, what can I and can't I do? So they can't respond to everything. Um, and then it is a question. I think I've found people in politics are often not that different to everybody else, right? So you'll find people can be very complex where they'll have very, you know, they can have, um, you know, really positive views about some things and, and um, you know, really, you know, be really good on some things and not, not so good on others. And I can think of people like, you know, and I'll, I will talk about probably because it's so more unusual, I guess, from my side, but to talk about, you know, people from the more conservative side of politics. So if you thought about someone like Alan Tudge, a very controversial figure, um, particularly now, um, but, you know, he, he was one of the absolute champions of getting reform around online gambling and the harm that online gambling was caused. And that was because he had a constituent who'd been ripped off by an online gambling company, and he, he connected, he empathetically connected yeah. with that person, and he and Nick Xenophon, and he was the champion inside the Liberal Party for absolutely seeking seeking that reform. So I think, you know, you, you can hear stories like that. I, I, I know um, you'll hear, like, uh, you know, Michaelia Cash. I'm, uh, my understanding is she became very passionate about human trafficking after visiting uh, a place one of the centres where people have been subjected to human trafficking, uh, you know, are, are taken, so survivors from human trafficking. So, you know, people making those empathetic connections can cuts across politics, right? Yeah. So you can do yeah, that. Really but people point. can still make pretty awful decisions at the same time as making, as being empathetic and um, moving on that. So I think there's always a bit of hope that if you can hit the right button for some people, a lot of people will, can be moved. Um, in that space. But the constraints they then face is they do need to think about what are the consequences and what are, you know, and there's sometimes the things we see when we haven't looked at the whole system. Um, And probably an area where that, I'd probably say that applies a bit, would be people applying on the protection system, right? So a lot of organisations that would work with people seeking asylum would, would see people who have a genuine claim for protection. Having done a lot of work with Pacific Island workers coming in on the scheme that Australia runs that brings in on farms, I've seen a lot of migration agents who go out to um, Pacific Island workers and say, hey, for 5000 bucks, I'll, I'll file a meritless protection claim and get you a permanent visa, and I'll take your $5,000. There's no hope that, that that's going to be the outcome the worker gets, 
So they're exploiting those people. So if you're in the immigration department, you are seeing both the legitimate claims and you're seeing the the negative claims. And I think we need to think about the people in those systems, the danger for them is they become cynical, right? So they start to not be able to recognise the genuine need and the genuine claims because they're seeing people trying to misuse the system or manipulate it or those who are facilitators um, exploiting it. So I think sometimes on our side too, we need to think about what are those wider implications? What might be the unforeseen circumstances? Another example I can give you, I worked on child employment laws in Victoria. We managed to get travel time included in, you know, there was a limited number of hours. If you're a child, you know, you're working in the entertainment industry, you're only 10 years old, there's a limited amount of time. And we got travel time included into that, right? So for some of the big performances, then what we found out was happening was the um, the show producers would require the family to live in a hotel next to the the theatre so that they wouldn't have the travel time wouldn't need to be taken into account, right? So you kind of got to think through, you know, when you're designing systems and regulation and laws, how enforceable are they? What are the sort of, what might be some of the unintended behaviours you drive that are undesirable, right? So that's some of the challenges that people in government face as well. And when it comes to democracy and sort of that influence of um, money over politics and power, do you know of examples of countries that are just doing this better or getting it right? Because I feel like there's also real um, fears with, you know, say the mining industry being able to spend a lot of money to topple you as prime minister or spend a lot of money to help your opponents. I mean, they don't even necessarily have to actually even donate. They can just threaten to, right? And that's pretty scary for your career. So how do we start to change that system? Yeah, look, we have certainly seen... um some of the European countries have um, been able to put further restrictions. Um, you've got countries like Belgium where corporations can't donate at all, um, so any individuals can donate into the system and then it is it is tightly capped um, as such. So you, you are limiting the influence of money um, within that system. Now, I think obviously there's a balance to be struck there because um, I think there is a there's a legitimate issue to say for the community potentially if the community is open to wanting certain people or wanting certain ideas, you need to allow people who might present those ideas to to run in the election. But I do think the focus here needs to be on the community, those who want to be elected, rather than those who wish to be in power. Um, and I I probably say if you're designing a d- democratic system. People who should be in tight focus are the electors, not those who wish to rule. Um, And you design your systems differently when you start thinking um, around that space. Uh, Certainly, um, Spain has has started to do better at trying to bring some more public money into the system. And if you're bringing in more public money and you're restricting private finance, well, then you're starting to rebalance um, those, those equations. I mean, the one that's pretty exciting for me that we've been exploring just recently is the is the study in Seattle. So Seattle's just, you know, one city in the US. Um, and in 2015, it introduced a system where every resident of Seattle, uh, whether you were a citizen, a voting, a person who could vote or not, you were sent four $25 vouchers that you could give to any candidate huh. um, in the Seattle election. And that now means that, so Seattle's now run that four times. And it means Seattle has the largest and most diverse donor base in the whole of the US. And a whole lot of new candidates um, came into the, the system as well. 
So you've had a whole lot of people. And like one person I was looking at, he's an anti-poverty activist. He uh, African-American, had $10,000 to his name, and he was able to get up and run. He raised over $100,000 through democracy vouchers for his campaign. Wow. Um, and he was the runner-up in his district. Wow. Um, so he got 47.7% of the votes on the runoff um, out of that first-time first time candidate standing in a local um, city election, right, which is pretty amazing. And he ran he ran for the Democratic Socialists of America, which I kind of would have thought if you put socialist in front of your name in America, that's going to make you unelectable. But, uh, but look, Seattle also at the moment, um, Republicans don't get elected into the local city council. So the the sort of most right-wing candidates who get to run in Seattle elections are sort of business-focused Democrats. Um, and you certainly have had, uh, you know, there was previously a candidate elected from Socialist Alternative on the Seattle um, Council. So it's, a, it's an interesting place. Um, there are some lessons there. There were there was, there was certainly been attempts um, when there was a proposal to introduce a business tax in Seattle um, because... The US system doesn't, there's a kind of free speech argument that was won at the Supreme Court level. It means there's not an ability to shut out all private money out of the system um, as such. And if people want to run a campaign outside of giving it to a candidate, they're pretty much free to do that. Um, and as a result of that, there was a 2019 election, there was a proposal to introduce a, um, a business tax. And as a result of that, Amazon poured in reportedly a million dollars into the Seattle local council election to try and influence the election, right? So this is the issue that if you're going to empower ordinary citizens to have a voice and to participate more actively in the system, power doesn't surrender itself easily. Power will cling on and power will fight back. Those who have power find it very hard to give it up and they will fight back to try and make sure they're not having to surrender it and share it. Um, so that 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 unfortunately is something we can expect. It's very hard for people to voluntarily choose to give up their power. Well, I'm struggling to voluntarily choose to give up our hour here, but <laughs> we are rapidly coming to an end. And um, I'm very aware that I've had the privilege of asking most of the questions here. So Millie, is there anything else that you would like to ask before we are, I start to wrap it up a little bit? Oh, no, but I loved your description of sitting here with someone who might have swallowed a library. Um, because I think there's, you know, this... I'm really fascinated by that idea of public money into democracy. And I just wanted to clarify this when you're talking about the Spain example and you're talking about putting public money into the system, that this idea of that, I think you call them democracy vouchers in Seattle, that's that's basically about giving anyone who's never even had an opportunity to think about influencing the process beyond the vote a kind of tangible public money, public voucher to to engage in a way. Is, is that what you're talking about by public money in the system? Yeah, look, absolutely. So these they, those vouchers are publicly funded. So there's a there's a property tax in Seattle that funds the vouchers. So effectively, it, it, it is it, it is basically saying, you know, because the argument, and I've heard certainly heard Labor people say this in Australia publicly, is, well, you know, people's ability to spend money into the electoral system is part of their democratic participation. Well, I'm like, well, if I'm on a... If I'm on Job Seeker, you know, where's my chance to to engage in that sort of democratic participation? So, giving people those vouchers is a way of saying, well, here's an here's an opportunity for you to actively participate um, within the system, which you otherwise wouldn't have. Um, so, but as I say, the the lesson out of Seattle is giving allowing those people to have more of a voice is only going to work is if you say those who have loads of money 
can't just swamp the system. So you can't have a mining magnet or another billionaire turn up and just flood the system um, with unlimited funds to drown out the voices of the majority. Um, and I think that that is that is one of the lessons w- when you look at the Seattle one. <laughs> if we're going to allow people more rights to participate and to meaningfully engage in the system, we're going to need to find ways to ensure that that those who have vast wealth can't just drown them out or, or shove them out of the way. Well, as we do um, kind of reflect on some of these amazing ideas, I was just wondering if you might be able to kind of help us end on a bit of a philosophical note or a, a sort of more internal kind of reflection of like what sustains you to kind of keep going? How do you how do you stay awake and engaged and plugged in in times when a lot of people are saying for our mental health, we should all stop reading the news and we should just focus on what we can control and, you know, love our families and spend time in nature and be with our friends. We need advocates. We need fighters. We need people who are aware and in touch with the world's pain and doing something about it. And we need those people to not go crazy and to also have good lives. And you seem to be somebody with a unique capacity not exclusively just to you, but a fairly rare capacity to do that over many, many years, decades now. Um, and so I'm curious what you've gathered along the way that sustains you in that, that you might be able to pass on. I think the first thing is to actually, is to be aware of those signs of hope, to actually look at the good things that have happened and the good things around us and where there is positive progress. Um, and and the decency that to, to acknowledge that, that people are generally pretty decent. I think one of my life lessons was one of my former human resources people I worked closely with. He sort of said, look, when someone's behaving in a certain way, the question you should be asking yourself, why would a reasonable, rational person behave in that way? And if you start to think about that, you then you start to explore, well, what is driving them? Be curious. One of the big lessons here is be curious. Why would a person behave in that way? Think about what's going on for them. And often there is other stuff going on in their life, or you might be, you know, at that interpersonal level, and that can also be true for, for people making decisions at a political level or a business level about thinking about why would they make those decisions and how do I get them to rethink um, doing that. I think the other thing I found um, really sustaining got me to really rethink. One of my favourite authors is this guy, Adam Grant, who is an organisational psychologist. And um, he kind of highlighted that uh, when we think about burnout or getting worn out, um, it actually is different for different people. And he pointed out for people who um, there are certainly, you need to find what motivates you and what energizes you. And he gave this story about a student teacher in America. She went to a really difficult school. Students weren't appreciative. The other staff weren't appreciative. She felt really deflated, felt really started, really started feeling burnt out. But instead of just taking time off, what she did instead was she joined up to a teacher mentoring program where she got to mentor other other young teachers and through that she got to mentor these people and had this massive positive feedback about the influence she'd had and the positive and out of that yeah. she felt completely re-energized and was able to go back to this school she was struggling with and actually not suffer burnout at all so i think and that's not to say well you know the only way to deal with with uh you know if you are feeling overwhelmed is to go and throw yourself into something else i'm not suggesting that but i'm suggesting figure out what what energizes you and for some people that is going to mean actually you need to take a break and just you know switch off from other things and recharge your batteries in that way but it's not true for everybody and for some people it's going to be find what really energizes find what you find, really find meaningful and that might mean you're just doing something else 
Um, and that actually helps you get through. Um, and I think for me, that's probably where I'm a bit at. I feel in my own life is there's a lot of positive stuff and a lot of interactions, and a lot of affirmation, even, you know, doing this interview with the two of you, I feel, wow, what, what great affirmation I've had from uh, Lily and Millie. So, you know, it's, it's been great. Um, and I think, you know, so there are lots of different things that sustain us. Um, there's also great, you know, I find I get a lot of boost out of feeling like I've actually been able to contribute something positive, hopefully, to people's lives in their interaction with me. Hopefully, most of the time, people walk away yeah. where I felt yeah. like I've at least, you know, I've tried to do something that um, uh, made their life maybe that tiny, maybe just a tiny bit better um, is is the option. Not going to be true all the time. I'm, <laughs> you know, I think that's true of all of us, but, uh, you know, that's certainly sustaining. Oh, look, that is beautiful. Um, for people who want to find more of your work and maybe get involved, um, is there a place that you would recommend, some website that they can go look up? Yeah, sure. So we have, uh, look, we do have a, a website, which is justact.org.au um, is the, the website where they can find the work we do with, within the Uniting Church. And there'll be a, there's a range of social justice issues there that people might want to connect with. Fantastic. Well, we will be linking to that and we'll be linking to many of the references that, that you've dropped into our, our chat today. It has been such an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you for three more hours and I'm sure really could too. So thank you so much for, for taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but next time I need to be reminded about how far we've come, I'm going to look back to England and France and the origins of modern democracy uh, and, you know, just how much we have expanded <laughs> who has a vote and a voice in that time, as well as gender rights and all kinds of remarkable things. I love that Mark has both the kind of inner He's, he's thought about the inner work and the outer work, and he never stops being curious about either. Um, and so I have the recommendations and the things that he's listed there for you in your show notes. If you want to go check out the website, justact.org.au, and you can sign up to be part of the campaigns there being run um, with the Uniting Church. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your company. Thank you for your feedback, for sharing these episodes for getting in touch with us podcast at australiaremade.org we really do love cultivating these conversations and bringing them to you um, as part of a network and community of people doing wonderful things all around the country and all around the world so we'll see you next time on the remakers for listening to The Remakers. I'm the host, Lily Spencer, and I record my part of these conversations from the beautiful Guppy Guppy country on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters, an Aboriginal culture 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I also want to pay a shout out to our producer, Anna Wilson, to my colleague and sometimes co-host, Dr. Millie Rooney, you can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. 
And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Remakers.